So last week I was on vacation, and I always appreciate the, uh, Dr. Clay Barnett uh, uh, preaching for me, stepping up to the plate, and, uh, and uh, I, listen, I always listen and just really uh, moved and, and, uh, by what God is doing through his life, and I always learn something, uh, and I learned, of course, his name means dirt ball, uh, or no, dirt, was it dirt on the, uh, Clay, yeah, I learned that, was that right? <laughs> No, just a very, a very stirring message, and um, so we're going to continue with that. People always ask, hey, how was a vacation? And, uh, you know, we always say the same answer, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, I always feel like we're going to almost one inch from death on I-4. Uh, we go to Orlando, and you have two boys, and it's always exciting and adventure and uh, anything but restful, but it, it, it was fun. We happened to go to the Lego store uh, when we were there. And uh, I I'm, uh, always marvel at the marketing uh, uh, strategy of companies like Lego. So we, we uh, found these creatures that they, they were irresistible. They had to have them. They had like big teeth and, you know, things coming out of their head and, and tails and stuff like that. And there were three of them. There were actually four of them. And, and so there were three of them, and they weren't all that expensive. And, and uh, they came in bags. The parts came in bags. And I don't know if you're up to date with Legos. I'm about to give you an education if you didn't. But if you have, um, if you have like a large Lego set, there, there, you may have like 14 different bags of parts in, in whatever that is. So if you're building a battleship or something, they, they give you like a lot of these different bags, and you're supposed to build it progressively so that you build the parts in bag number one, and then before you open bag number two, and it helps you kind of keep everything together. You, the last thing you'd want to do is just throw all the parts on the table and try to figure them out. It's just too many parts. So we had done that. We bought these, these the packages for these three different figures, three separate packages. But then there was this fourth figure, too, that looked really cool. It was bigger than the other three. And I said, well, I don't see the package for this one. They go, oh, well, you see, what happens is you build these three, and then you take them all apart. And this fourth one, which is supersized, it, it is the combination of these. So you use these parts of these three to do this. It's beautiful marketing because, you know, of course... Your child doesn't want to build something that looks really awesome and then tear it apart in order to build this one. So you, what you have to do is you buy these three and then you buy three more to make this fourth one. See how see what I'm saying? So we bought them all and uh, over vacation built them all. And so all along the way, I'm saying, now be careful, you know, keep these separate, keep all the parts separate because, you know, if you mix them together and they're three separate creatures, you know, you'll never get them apart uh, together. And, and so we did all that. And so we we arrived home. It was Labor Day. We were traveling and uh, traffic was heavy. It was raining that day. I don't know if you remember, but raining and the uh, car is packed and, and we have our four creatures in a Tupperware container with us so we got home later than we thought because of the traffic and and a couple of near-death experiences on the interstate and and all that and uh we have a, a recent addition to our family we have a a, a fish uh, and so while we were gone grandma my mom watched the fish so when we were coming into town before we unloaded the whole car we said well we'll uh we'll pick up the fish and then uh, we'll unload and everything so as you see where the story is going, don't you? So at any rate, we pulled into my mom's driveway. It had been raining a lot. And there was a, the, the lawn people had come that day. And uh, it was covered with gra wet grass, you know. So when you get out, it's all over your feet and all that. So 
As we got there, we pulled into the driveway, the, the van door slides open, and guess who fell out? My wife. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Surprise ending. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, the four creatures fell out, and katoosh, that was the sound. Katoosh. All those, all those parts that we had desperately wanted to keep separate were now all in a big mix on a wet driveway with very wet, sticky grass. And some of them, they went right under the car. It's at those moments, my friends, that as a parent, you want to stick it in reverse and just crunch right over the whole mess. I mean, I'm being honest with you. And then put it in drive and crunch it again. Crunch, crunch, crunch. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I just kind of lost myself in that moment, right? But no, you try to contain yourself. And all four of us were now on the driveway in the sticky wet grass, picking up these little Lego pieces. And then you notice that some were under the car. Well, this, I, I brought a picture, by the way, to, to show you the size of some of the pieces that were under the car. But see, here's the deal. When you're, if you know anything about anything about Legos, you can't leave a part out because that part, well, could be indispensable. That's the word for today, indispensable. Because, see, that little part might be a part that another part adds to. And if you didn't have that part, then you couldn't add something else to it. And if you're missing that part, you never know. Maybe that's the little part that's right under the car. So, a driveway being wet, I'm tired. I'm slightly grouchy. I'm pretty grouchy now that the whole thing happened, right? I find myself in a lowered push-up position, face down on this driveway with grass, because there's that one stinking little part that's underneath my car. And now my face is like this on my driveway, just reaching out just to get this one part. Because it's valuable. It's indispensable, in fact. In fact, indispensable is a different distinction than valuable. You see, you can have some things that are valuable. But indispensable means you can't do without it. See, I've got some things that are valuable that I could probably do without. But when you use the word indispensable, it means it's irreplaceable. That nothing else will do. You have to have that part. Let me remind you why we're talking about our identity. We've been in this collection of conversations for some time. And we're getting near the end. And the reason that we're talking about our identity is that we... In our human existence, our actions follow our identity. If I believe that I'm useless, I will act like I'm useless. If I believe that I'm a loser, then of course I'm going to act like a loser. If I just surrender to the fact that I'm just a hothead, every time something comes up, I'm just going to let people have it. If I embrace that, that that is my identity, then I'm going to act like that. I'm going to give myself permission to act like that. So there are times where we have to take the identity of who we are in God and by faith embrace that identity against the flow, the mass flow of what we might be feeling about ourselves. Because there are some times where I may not feel indispensable. In fact, 
if it were left to my emotions, there are times where I felt, feel quite dispensable, quite disposable. Like, well, somebody else could do it. If I'm not here, I, somebody, they'll just they'll fit right in. Doesn't matter what piece it is. And to counter that, I must look at truth because, see, truth trumps feelings. Truth trumps experiences. See, through your life, you may say, well, this is my identity because someone treated me that way. Or my parents treated me that way. Or I, my friends treated me that way. Or I was left. I was abandoned. Or all the things that happened to us in life that begin to fossilize an identity in our inner self. And so we have to overcome that, that fossilization, that embedding of wrong images and apply ourselves to the scripture and say, by faith, I'm going to trump my feelings, trump my experiences, trump what other people may be telling me, and I'm going to hold to the truth. And that's the reason why we're talking about our identity. But see, there's a, a different angle to this that we've added because if you, we just wanted to talk about that, then we would have said, okay, the, the name of this collection is identity. But we've, we've added into this mix a very real tension. That's why it's identity theft. Because, see, it's not enough for us just to embrace the identity of who we are in Christ. We also have to recognize that we have an enemy, a very real enemy in the spiritual warfare, who is constantly trying to rip us off of our identity in God because he's smart enough to understand more than we do at times, our enemy I'm speaking of, more than we do at times, that our actions follow our identity. And if he can rip off our identity in God, then he'll know that he'll weaken our actions. The kingdom of God does not get an advance. And for our enemy, that's a win. So if he can say, oh, no, you're very disposable, you're very useless, then what will happen is that our actions will say, well, follow that. Well, of course I am. And so there is an attempt. And the attempt comes from several different sources. It comes from this, uh, this spiritual dimension. Sometimes it comes from other people. Sometimes it comes from us, doesn't it? There are times where a movie begins to play in our own mind. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's not a long play movie. It doesn't take long for me, just sometimes a few frames for the movies to start to get the going to, to me uh, of saying, well, yeah, maybe I'm not all that useful. And then it begins to play. And all, and 45 minutes, I'm telling you, for myself, I can become from a hero to a zero in 45 minutes. And so not only are there outside forces, but there are internal forces that we're fighting. And for that reason, we have to say, look, we are in a civil war here over our identity. And if we embrace the identity, then our actions will follow. That's why we're talking about this, this topic. We begin in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. Now, Paul, as we've mentioned in weeks past, brilliantly illustrates the church as a body. He could have said it was an organization. It is an organization. He could have said, referred to it as a movement. It is a movement. But brilliantly, he went be, beyond that and said, the church of Christ is also a picture of the, a body, like the human body. And he picks it up with that focus here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
Now take note that he has, he has taken parts of the body that we would refer to as superior and inferior. In other words, he said, the head can't say to the feet. We would say, well, see, if I lose a foot, I can still operate. But if I lose my head, it's all over. So naturally, he's saying the superior can't say to the inferior as it may suppose. We could take it a step further and say the, the frontal part of our brain can't say to our earlobe. Let's just take it a step further. We would say, well, the earlobe, I, you know, I could live without an earlobe. Paul say, not so fast. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. He goes on to say in verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body. Now, here it is that seem to be weaker. He didn't say those parts of the body that are weaker, but those parts of the body that seem to be that have the appearance or you might think are weaker are actually indispensable. You can't. Get rid of them. They're very valuable, even though in your mind you might have deemed them or labeled them as weaker and unnecessary. In fact, I was looking up the, the definition of dispensable. And here's what I found. Dispensable, the definition is able to be replaced or able to be done away with. See, Paul say not every single part, every single part, every single person in the body of Christ, they cannot so easily be replaced. They are valuable. They are that little Lego that's underneath the car when it's rainy and muddy and grassy that is worthy of our effort, every effort to get on our face and reach it. You see, I'm reminded in this, in this passage, in this thought, that if we were the only human being living on the planet, that it was Christ who said, not only will I get down face down in a wet grassy pavement, I'll get down on earth on your level. I'll extend my hands on a cross. I'll be tortured in agony for you. This is how much God loves us because he would say, and all the humans that live on the planet who have ever lived and who ever will live billions and billions and billions of human beings, if there were only one, Christ still would have seen us as indispensable enough to tangibly put his love into action and reach to earth and go through what he went through for us. There's some synonyms to Dispensable, superfluous, expendable, disposable, replaceable, non-essential. You see, there are times that not only do we fight that in our civil war against ourselves to make sure that we're embracing that, that we are indispensable. But there are times when we look at other people. I don't know about you. And I can cross them off the list. I read this passage, but I can still cross them off the list. I can dispose of them. They're dispensable. They may not think like I do. They may not act like I do. They may not have as much energy as I do. And I'm like, oh, now you're dispensable. You're disposable. So today we're going to look at a journey, a story of three men who journeyed together. They journeyed not only for a long time. They journeyed not only in long mileage, but they had also another journey. It's a journey of what I'm going to call the journey this morning of two forks. The, the two forks I refer to are a plastic fork 
and a silver fork. You know the, the, the silverware that you have that you only bring out on Thanksgiving? You know what I mean? We have that. I think my mom gave it to me. It's, it's you know, you, you kind of pass it down from generation and you say, we're going to break out the silver, you know, for Thanksgiving. And see, we keep ours in a box. You know, it's that box, that wooden box that's got a special place for it. And we don't keep any plastic in that box, by the way. The plastic goes in a cardboard box. But the silver, oh, it's got the, it's got the important wooden box. It has all the felt, right? And you, you open it up, you know, a couple times a year, and there it is. It's almost like you can hear, oh, when you open the box, you know, it's there. You see, there, there are times when we say, you know, people are disposable. And I'm going to look at them as such. This is the journey that we're going to see. Because I can so easily throw away. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have not washed a plastic utensil. When we go on vacation, in fact, this is one of the things we splurge on. I know, big spender. When I go on vacation, you know, my wife, I don't know how many forks she washes during the year, but hundreds, if not thousands. So one of the things was, hey, let, when we go, let's get paper plates, because we stay in a place, got a little kitchen, let's get paper plates and uh, plastic utensils, because I don't know, I, I, we just don't wash these, you know, when we're done with them. Okay, maybe a few times I have. I am a cheapskate. I've, I've washed plastics and stuff. And when nobody's looking, I use my napkin, I fold it, and I put it back in the cabinet. <laughs> Confession time. Anyway. But there have been times for me, maybe you too, that when I'm emptying my plate in the trash to put the plate into the dishwasher, one of these goes in, the real fork. And I'm like, I become a dumpster diver at that point, right? You're like, oh, no, I threw away. A oh, my goodness. I got to. And you're going through the trash. Why? Because this fork is important. This fork is disposable. It's a journey of disposability that begins with a man that you'll recognize if you know the New Testament. His name is Paul. Now, his original God, uh, our, our birth name was Saul, as, as many of you know. And Saul, he, he uh, was very passionate. He was a driver. He was a very driven man. How do I know that? Well, you see, before he had this intersection with Jesus Christ, he was so passionate for his Jewish faith. He was so passionate that he saw that these new Christians were a threat to what he had had in his mind so that he loved so much the law, the Old Testament, as we would call it. And he loved it so much that in any given court in the United States of America, he would have been arrested and put in jail for a long, long time because he was in the least an accessory to murder because he was so passionate against this newfound movement called Christianity. Now, Paul would not have only been in this day and age indicted and, and accused and convicted of, of murder, but it would have gone further because... His murder was not just a, a random crime where he was a, a, a street criminal and, and armed robbery and things got out of hand and just killed somebody he didn't know. It wasn't a family dispute that he had that his, his, the emotions got out of control and in, in the heat of anger he killed some family member. Oh, no, no, no. See, he took it a step further in what we would call today a hate crime because he targeted 
a people group. He targeted Christians so that they would no longer live and they no longer could advance the kingdom. This is who he was. And as God would do, he saw this man not as a plastic fork, but a silver one. You see, he saw the drive of this man. That good grief. If this guy is driven to that level for the faith that he believes in, just think of what he could be if I could get my hands on him. So Christ intercepted his goals, his life. Christ intercepted Saul, changed his name to Paul. Paul's life was amazingly changed. But now it was time for Paul to go to church. And it didn't go so well. He showed up as a silver fork, but they treated him like a plastic fork. You see, when we're reading about his change, it falls in Acts chapter 9. And the challenge of reading the Bible at times is, is if you're doing a straight read through, it's hard to, to see the context, the historical context of what's happening. So sometimes you, you know, you flip a page and think, oh, on the next day this happened. But when he arrived at Jerusalem, it wasn't a week after he had become a Christian, after Christ had intercepted him. It wasn't a month. It wasn't three months. It wasn't a quarter. It wasn't a half a year. It wasn't a year. He had become a Christian by the time he went to the church in Jerusalem. He had become, he had been a Christian for three years. Enough for his resume to have been built a bit for them to accept him as like, wow, there's a silver fork. Not good enough for these folks. Watch Acts chapter nine, verse 26. When Saul or Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the box of silver. He tried to, to work himself in with the rest of the silver forks, the big boys. He tried. It's a sad word in that verse. He tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. You see, when I read that, I, I can relate to it because there are times when we, we call someone plastic. We call them disposable. We call them dispensable. We label them. We may not say it with our lips, but we certainly think it because of their past. We think, oh, that's the person that was divorced. And all of a sudden that becomes their identity. That's the person who had an abortion. That's a person that used to have this kind of lifestyle. That's the person that did this or that or the other. And all of a sudden, somehow they're inferior to the rest of us who only are better at maybe hiding our skeletons, hiding our junk, as the film said, hiding the things that we would like to pretend didn't happen in our lives. And somehow we become superior utensils. And Paul tried to come in and say, man, God's got all Christ has got a hold of my life. Not so fast there, Mr. Plastic, even though you may be driven. Now, we've said over and over that the small, simple words of Scripture are so important. And I'm telling you these next two words. They're the words that, like on a train track. You know how a train track all of a sudden will go whoosh, and switch gears, right? Switch, switch directions. These next two words are such pivotal words in the New Testament. They're not only pivotal words in the New Testament. They're pivotal words in what happened to the entire region. Paul walks in the church 
And he says, man, Christ has changed my life. My past is gone. My sins are washed. I've got a clean slate. And not only that, I've been serving him with great passion for three years. Not good enough. And then what happens in these next two words, in this next passage, it changes the entire landscape of the New Testament. Watch. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. The two words are, but Barnabas. But Barnabas. You may think, okay, that doesn't seem like a big deal to me. It was a very big deal because Paul's the first player in this whole act we're looking at. Now comes the second player in this journey together. And he, his name is Barnabas. And Barnabas looks at him and says, you know, guys, even though everybody in the room is seeing plastic, I'm seeing silver. I'm seeing beyond what you're thinking. I'm seeing beyond your fears. I'm seeing beyond his past. And I'm seeing great potential in this man. But Barnabas took Paul, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, Paul, same guy, stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I have to stop and think, what would have happened that day? Had there not been a Barnabas who saw through lenses of silver rather than lenses of plastic? Think about it. Perhaps on that day, even though Paul was a driven kind of guy, he might have started to believe about himself. Oh, yeah, I guess I am disposable. I guess my past does hold me back. We may, if that were the case, we wouldn't have the book of Romans. We wouldn't have the book of Corinthians. We wouldn't have the second letter of Corinthians. We wouldn't have Philippians. We wouldn't have Ephesians. We wouldn't have Colossians. We wouldn't have Timothy. We wouldn't have Titus. We wouldn't have, and what would have happened to the entire region? He was that little Lego that was so indispensable. And one guy saved the day. Because he was willing to get on the wet, grassy driveway face down and reach hard enough to get that little plastic piece. You never know in your life if we've crossed somebody off our list in our mind because of their past, what they might do. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anybody stand up for you like that. I have. As a leader, I have. Two or three, I can think of two or three men in my life over the course of many years that in the heat of that moment where no one else believed you, where everyone else was seeing plastic, that guy saw silver. I can think of the day. I can think of the, 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 the place, the location. I can remember vividly the words in those moments when the guy beside me said, hey, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not true. And I'm here to stand beside this man. I tell you, vivid. Don't know if you've ever had it happen. Vivid. Something happens in that relationship in that moment. Something happened that day. Paul would never, ever forget that moment of reach that Barnabas made. He said, guys, wait a minute. I'm going to stand up for this man, Barnabas. So they were tied to the hip, as we would say. Two or three years following that, Paul, because he was Mr. Driver, he said, man, we got to take this show on the road. We've got to, this is too, too good to contain here in this location. So he said, man, I'm going to hit the road in what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Well, guess 
who he took with him. Barnabas, of course. Man, this guy stood up with me with, in front of all these, these Christian leaders. And the first time I went to the church of Jerusalem, this was the stand-up guy. I'm taking Barnabas. But something happened. Barnabas showed up. Man, Paul's driven. He's like, yeah, let's go. This first missionary journey. Man, I'm all about it. Let's, let's hit the road. They're packing their backpacks. They're, they're shining their sandals or whatever you do to, for, with sandals. You're, they're getting ready for the trip. And then Barnabas shows up. And he said, hey, I want, to take a, I want to take another guy with us. Okay, who, who is it? It's my cousin. Now, I'm just playing it out in my mind. You know, the Bible is very real, by the way. And I'm just playing it out in my mind. You know, we don't get everything. John said if we wrote, he wrote everything in the Bible, the world couldn't contain enough books. So we know we didn't get everything. But I'm just, I'm just imagining Paul, you know, the driver type personalities I know. That he's all anxious to go, man. Get the show on the road. And then here comes Barnabas and said, hey, man. Let's take my cousin. I'm thinking he's like, what? You're, I don't even know this guy. I, why would we take your cousin, man? We, we, you know, what's that about? But watch, here, here it is. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. The two of them, that's Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, which was a port city, and they sailed from there to the island of Cyprus. Keep that island in mind, that location in mind, the island of Cyprus. Verse 5, when they arrive at Salamis, they proclaim the word of, the, of God in the Jewish synagogues. John Mark was with them as their helper. Now, John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. When you see this, you think, okay, who is this guy? Well, let me tell you that the scripture gives us plenty about who he is. So let me give you a breakdown because it's important to the story of this, the journey of two forks. You see, a guy could look at, at, at this person and at John Mark. He was pretty young, pretty new at the whole deal. And he's the, the, the unknown cousin. I've been, you know, my background is music. And I, I know how it is when you've got a group together, a band together, and someone says, hey, you know, my cousin plays drums. That could mean anything, honestly. That, that could mean he, he holds a tambourine and, and doesn't drop it when he rattles it. You know, it could mean anything. So they're taking a risk here on it, right? But here's John, here's, here's John Mark's story. You see, the chapter before in the book of Acts, things started to heat up. If you want to read it later, you can. But in Acts chapter 12, we're in Acts 13. In Acts chapter 12, in Jerusalem, James was killed. And James was killed, and when he was killed, the political leaders saw how this kind of electrified the crowd, electrified the, the religious leaders of the day. And like, wow, that went pretty well. You know, sometimes a politician, no matter what, they'll say, well, that worked publicly. Let's do it again. And so they took Peter, and they said, well, we'll kill him too. So they put Peter in jail. And as Peter was in jail, in this particular house, there was a group of people who were pouring it out in prayer. And as you remember, miraculously, because these Christians were in deep prayer for Peter, who was in jail, God sent a messenger and busted wide open the gate of the jail, and Peter escaped. Well, this particular house where they were praying, it was John Mark's mom. It was his mother praying in that house. You can read it in Acts chapter 12. And in this house... Because they were praying for Peter, we learn about the relationship of, of John Mark 
to Peter. Peter is the one that led John Mark to Christ because in the scripture, in the New Testament, when Paul, for example, refers to Timothy, he says, Timothy, my son. And he wasn't his physical son. He was his spiritual son. When people were led someone to Christ in the New Testament, they said, now you're, you're, you're my son spiritually. So watch first Peter chapter five, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, that's the church in Rome he's talking about, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. That's John Mark. Sometimes he's called John, sometimes he's called Mark, sometimes he's called John Mark. That just to, to make things simple. Thanks a lot. But we're referring to John Mark, or his name is Mark sometimes. So he was brought to Christ, so he had some credentials. So Barnabas wasn't off his rocker when he said, okay, let's bring, bring the cousin, even though that you may not know. I was reading recently about Lewis and Clark. You know, Lewis and Clark, it's a fascinating expedition. It's a journey that just a lot of hardship and a lot of resilience, right? There came a point in the time in, in the journey where they were hiring, Lewis and Clark, were, they were hiring the team. And they were hiring trappers, and they were also trying to find people that could translate because they knew that they were going to go into new territory. They were going to meet Native American tribes, and so they would need to be able to speak with them because they were coming in peace. They were trying to explore the land as they had been commissioned by Thomas Jefferson, right? You remember the story? And along the way, they hired this man. He was from Canada, and he was a trapper. He could translate a little bit. His wife was um, Sagajawea. You remember Sagajawea? Remember the name uh, uh, of the young teenage Native American girl? Now, all the rest of the guys were, were men. They were all men because this, this was going to be a rugged journey. So when it was suggested that Sagajawea come on the journey, you got to imagine that there were some guys that were not happy about that. Like, What? You're, you're bringing with us this young teenage girl, uh, this Native American, and, and uh, it doesn't make sense to us. Not only that, right before they left, two months before they left, she had a baby. So let's, let's track through, forge through forests, 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 and, and cliffs, and mountains, and let's bring a young teenage mom with the, how do you do that back then? Is there like a, did they have those unfoldable cribs, those fold up crib things? How do you do that? So if you're on the team, you're looking at Lewis Clark, what are you thinking about? It may have, may have been the same as, as, as Paul. What are you thinking about? This guy's pretty fresh in the whole faith. I don't know why we're bringing him. And so it must have had that sense to it. You know what I mean? Sure enough, they sailed. All three of them. Paul, Barnabas. And John Mark, they arrived on the island of Cyprus. Things started to heat up in a way that I'm sure these boys hadn't seen before. There was a sorcerer that began to harass them. And all of a sudden, through the power of God, Paul begins to allow God to flow through him. And supernatural things happened that day that you can read about, but it was powerful and it was over the top, off the chart, no matter what phrase you want to put, it was like out there. And all of a sudden things started getting harder. Things began to heat up. And we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 13 from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, 
where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, you know, you know, on that day, Paul says, I told you not to bring Sacagawea. I told you not to bring that little plastic piece. I told you. You They must have had words. Because later on we do understand that they had words. Paul was in his... He's a driver, don't forget. Driven enough to like kill people over his faith. Driven enough to say, man, let's put this show on the road. I don't care what God had revealed to him how tough this journey was going to be. And he's like, no problem. I'm in. That kind of a driver... Doesn't take easily people who are not in the mix. Now, from John Mark's point of view, when things heated up, he said to the whole mission, you're disposable. I can deal without this. Now, it tells us that he went back to Jerusalem. So bear with me for two minutes of academia here. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts particularly, there are two centers, two locations. One is Jerusalem, and the other is Antioch. Jerusalem is where everything started, and it represents the old school strategy. Antioch represents the new school strategy. What I mean by that is, in Jerusalem, as you, if you know the, the, the scriptures, that things move really fast. And many of the Jews began to be converted to Christ. However, they held on to things of their former system. You shouldn't eat this. You shouldn't drink this. Systems of the, of the past where Christ said you don't have to do that anymore. But they still held on to them. To the point that we find in, in Scripture, we won't look at it today, that, to the point that Paul, who was more centered in Antioch, and Peter, who was centered in Jerusalem, he said, Paul said, I had to face off with Peter and say, why are you doing that? This is a new strategy. Didn't you get the, the memo? Didn't you get the field manual? Things are changed. You don't have to do that anymore. And they had a big disagreement about it. So when you see that John Mark left, it didn't just say he, went, he left, but he left for Jerusalem. Because see, Paul began to say, you know what? I'm going to open up the entire world to the non-Jews now. And all those rituals that you're doing, John Mark, you don't have to do them anymore. See, that vision, that strategy was a, probably a bit much for him. But he could not deny the power of God. But even in that moment, when things got tough, but they were powerful, in that moment, John Mark said, I'm, you're disposable to me. I'm going back to what's familiar. Why do I say that? Now I'm going to be open, but not as open as I'm going to be here in a minute. I'm going to be open. From a pastor's heart, it's often broken by the migratory pattern, the disposable mindset of the church culture in America today. What do I mean by that? I say it respectfully, but I say it with a broken heart. When things begin to heat up, it's so easy for us to say, you know what? This whole thing, it's plastic, man. I'm out of here. You see, when things heat up is often the time when things get best. And in a, in a church like ours that says, man, we're going to dig deeper than normal. We're going to get close to one another. And when you get close to one another, I don't know if you've noticed, but you get the smell a little different. 
We get distant and no, nobody smells. You get close, everybody starts to smell a little bit, don't they? You start to see their junk, start to see my junk. Well, Steve, I thought you were perfect. Okay, aside from me, I am perfect. But um, no, of course not. You start to see and feel and then you have more disagreements, but there's more power. And in those moments, because you have this tension which should be there, as you'll see in this, this journey, that should be there. How many times have I sat in my office after a meeting where someone says, oh, it's getting a little hard, I'm leaving. How many times has this pastor sat in my office, at my desk, weeping, not because that person left, but because of the disposable mindset of the body of Christ? You see, the enemy wins when we just keep going through a turnstile. The enemy wins. The enemy does not win when we look at each other as indispensable. And no matter how hard it gets, I'm in for life. I'm in the journey, man. Why? Because you're silver. And by the way, so am I. You see, powerful things begin to happen. You see, what would have happened if, if Paul would have said, I'm out. Just think of everything would happen. But what happened because John Mark dropped out? You see, Paul and Barnabas came back and said, oh, man. Woo! We saw God move. We saw, I mean, it was hard. People were, man, they were saying mean things against us. They were throwing stuff at us. Okay, we got beat up a few times. And man, I got to tell you, there's this whole region. Dude, they're Christ followers. See, they're, you could see his eyes were like bulging. But see, John Mark missed all that. See, it's about the time when things get heated up. And we were like, we want to run back to Jerusalem. That's so familiar where mommy is. Mommy was back in Jerusalem. It's comfortable. It's familiar. It's tough, isn't it? I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to run. It's in us. It's part of the Civil War. I can't tell you how many times in my mind I'm like, oh, you know, that's fine. You're plastic. I'm gone. It's a lot harder, is it not? To care for silver than it is plastic. Now, these boys came back after the first missionary journey. If they were tight to the hip before they left, what do you think they were when they came back, Paul and Barnabas? After two or three years, Mr. Driver, his name was Paul, said, hey, let's do it again. Can you imagine hanging out with this guy? Let's do it again. Okay, all right. So Barnabas says, all right, let's do it again. Let's go back. Let's revisit the places we went. Let's see what God will do. Hey, I'd like to bring somebody with me, Paul. Cool, you got somebody new because the last one didn't work out so great. It's actually my cousin. Oh, you got another cousin. No, it's the same cousin. Can you imagine? I mean, this is real life here. This is not a fairy tale story. Can you imagine, Paul? No, you got to be kidding me. Not that lousy piece of plastic. Are you kidding me? Watch what happens. Acts chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, of course he would, let's go back. 
Let's visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin. I want to take John, who's also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him. That's a nice way of saying no way. Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. You see, what happened in this moment is like, mm-mm, no way, no day. Mm-mm, nope, not coming. In that moment, of all people, of all people, Barnabas, or Paul, who had been given a second chance by the man he was speaking to, Barnabas, of all people, Paul, the receiver, the recipient of a second chance in Jerusalem, of all people, he looked into the eyes of the man who stood up for him and said, nope. Not giving this man a second chance. He's plastic to me. He's plastic to me. It wasn't this past. He dropped the ball. He blew it. He didn't see it. He didn't get the vision. He didn't get the vision. And you're in my mind, crossing you out. Not moving fast enough, crossing you out. Don't have my personality, you're out. Now, let me get very transparent with you. Along the way, I've shared with our church, here are the struggles I've gone through. And I do that because two reasons. One, I want you to understand that we all struggle. And I, and if I don't share these with you, you think, well, the guy up front, and boy, he's got his act all together. And, and then what begins to fossilize in your own heart is like, I'm not as good as he are, is. I promise you that's not the case. So it's important to, for me to... To be transparent like that. The second reason I do is it's cathartic. It makes me feel good to just get off my chest. No, I'm just kidding about that part. And at this point, you're thinking, did I roll up my windows, right? I knew it. Just, <laughs> I can read a crowd. I'm telling you. It's good. I've shared with you over the years my challenge with overworking. Have I not? I've shared with you the challenge of being a dad. And not spending enough time with two beautiful boys because I'm an overworker. I've shared with you through the years my struggle that, that Christ has worked through the struggle of overeating and, and using food as a comfort instead of fuel. I've shared these struggles. I'm about to share another struggle with you. One that where the Holy Spirit, you know how the Holy Spirit whispers. And here's the whisper, just because maybe you can relate to this. Here's the whisper. Steve, you dispose of people too quickly. You cross them off the list too quickly. Steve, people, they might not have the passion to pray right away because it may take time. See, Steve, I can see in the future. In 2018, boy, they're going to catch it. But see, you didn't see that, so you've made them plastic. They didn't catch the vision right away. So he said, well, they don't got it, so I'm going to cross them right off. But see, it takes time for people to understand certain things, Steve. There's certain personalities that are different. They're not going to be as driven as you are. They're not going to be task-driven like you are. But they have some indispensable value, Steve, that they might not have that you have. That's what God's doing in my life. How about you? Are there people in your life that, for whatever reason, maybe they blew it in the past, 
Maybe they're dropped the ball. Maybe they don't have a similar personality. Maybe they don't catch what you're trying to say quick enough. Whatever that reason is, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where mentally, if not verbally, but mentally more than anything, I've said, you know what? I've checked you off. I've signed you out. You're not in my man because why? I'm a driver. I like to be driven. I'm on a task, dude. And, and in this moment, nope, he's not coming with us. And what happened in that moment is something even more drastic. These two buddies on this journey, Paul and, and Barnabas, Barnabas said, you're out of your mind. Are you kidding me? You, Paul of all people, you of all people, son, brother, friend, I can't believe what you're saying. Watch Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Over this decision of Paul not to bring John Mark, they had such a sharp agreement. That's not a mild misunderstanding. This is like it all, it's just face to face. Have you ever been that angry with somebody? I've never been that angry with somebody that I didn't love so deeply. You see, they love, this didn't happen on a Sunday morning. These boys were tight. And because they were tight, they said, come on. And they were in each other's face and they had such a sharp disagreement that sadly they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sold are you kidding me? To the same location. John Mark, I'm going to give you a second shot at Cyprus. What a guy this Barnabas was. Not a new location where no one would know that you left Cyprus. I'm going to go back, son. We're going to go back to Cyprus, the point that you left. How brilliant is God? Now, doesn't stop there. Watch this. If any of us are writing this story, we would write it this way. But Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left. That's how we would write it. But see, as the Holy Spirit breathes the Bible, he puts in a different word. He puts in but. You see, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but doggone it. That's why the but is there, not an and. Isn't that brilliant? But. As not as it should be, Paul went another direction with Silas, who was a good guy, by the way, left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, ah, this was not, not over this. How many times can we cross someone out and deem them as, as dispensable, disposable, because we simply disagree? Hey, headline breaking news. We're human beings. We're not going to always see eye to eye. What we do with it is another story. You see, when I look at this, this journey of two forks here, and I think of this plastic fork, when I'm done with it, you know what I do? You know what I do with this? You know how hard that was? Not hard at all. You see, to see people as indispensable, that means irreplaceable. I got to wash this thing, man. And I got to rinse it. I got to dry it. If it's silver, I got to polish the darn thing. I got to place it in that special box. And when I take it out of the box, I got to tarnish it again. So I don't even know why I put it in the box in the first place. And I got to bring it out and I got to polish it. And then I got to wash the polish off. 
and then I got to rinse it, and then I got to dry it. In other words, there's a lot of effort that goes into silver, but that's what Christ calls us to. He did not call us to have plastic, disposable relationships. It's tough, is it not, to deal with silver? I think of David and his 400 men. You read it. God delivered to him a team that was not stellar. He delivered a subpar team to David. But David was patient enough and loved them enough. He didn't see plastic, but he saw silver. And by the way, Christ was the same with the 12 that he got. I don't know, but they were not at the top of the class, if you didn't notice. He took people that others would have said, they're dispensable, they're disposable, they're replaceable, they're non-essential. And Christ said, I'm going to show the world what it means like to rinse and wash and polish silver. And they will change the world, my friend. They will change the world. You see, something happened in this journey. And the end of the story is remarkable. It's remarkable. Somewhere along the line, Paul mended the fence with Barnabas. We know that by the letters like in 1 Corinthians, which happened after this incident. And Paul was talking about Peter and how he's taking his wife around and, and you know, gets supported financially. But Paul says, do Barnabas and I, or the, we're the only ones that have to work. And so he puts Barnabas on an equal plane. So we know they mended the fence. But the beauty is in John Mark. You see, as many of you may know, Paul eventually was incarcerated for his faith. He eventually was martyred for his faith. He was a passionate guy. What other ending could there be? And in his incarceration, in his, in his imprisonment, Paul wrote letters. One of those letters was the, what we call the book or the letter to the Colossians. And at the end of these letters, as we would do, hey, say, say hi to Bob in Tampa. You know, he would have some greetings at near the end of these letters. This letter comes somewhat near the end of Paul's life. We believe four to six years before he died. And Paul had often said, everybody has deserted me. And so he often would say, hey, by the way, there's a couple of people here in prison with me. And I just want to let you know they say hi. That's how he would end his letters. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. As does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You see, this man was willing to journey enough and wash and rinse and polish enough. That not only did he not run from Paul. He ran towards him while he was in prison. While everybody else left him. And he's sitting next to Paul in prison. And Paul goes on to say. Now. Because he's going to send John Mark off. He's going to send Mark off. And he's going to say. Now you, I want you to, Thanks for coming to see me in prison. I'm going to send you off. And so he's writing to the Colossians. And he says now. You've received my instructions about John Mark, right? If he comes to you, I want you to know something. He's indispensable. You welcome him. Because I didn't. 
you welcome him. Now, right before the end of his life, Paul, his last letter is to Timothy, his disciple. And then the very last thing he writes to Timothy in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, the very last thing that Paul, the driver, writes. He writes these words. Only Luke is with me. He's written earlier in the first chapter of 2 Timothy that everyone has deserted him from Asia. Everybody. He then goes on to say at the beginning of the fourth chapter, he names a couple of people. They, when it was time for my trial, they treated me like plastic. Everyone has disposed of me. Only Luke is with me. Hey, would you get Mark? And would you bring him with you? Because he is indispensable to my ministry. Helpful. What a change. What an end to this journey. That all three men began with this mindset of disposability. It proves to us that God can break down the barriers of our own human movies that play. And he can rip the reel from the machine and say, play a different movie. Change your reel from plastic to silver. Even that little piece may be valuable. By the way, I found it. I found it. I wonder in your life who this is. I wonder in your life who you've written off, who you've canceled, who you've deleted, who you've unfriended, who disappointed you, who dropped the ball, who didn't quite get it as fast as you thought they should have, who did something wrong, who doesn't have the same personality. I wonder who that is, because we all have them. They're John Marks. They're Sacagaweas. By the way, let me end with this. Sacagawea, the young teenage. You see, Lewis and Clark were brilliant in their strategy, and they realized that when they got to a certain point, they would need horses to carry them to their destination. There was a tribe, the Shoshone tribe, and they had heard about them, heard that they had horses, and they were going to negotiate with them some goods and food products, etc., to negotiate to see if from the Shoshone tribe they could get enough horses to make the rest of the journey. It was critical. It was indispensable. So what had happened is that this this young girl, three years before, she had been kidnapped from the Shoshone tribe by the Hadastas. So she understood the language of the Hadastas, and she understood the language of the Shoshones. Now, as they forged into new territories, that they headed west, it's pretty surprising that they weren't slaughtered and killed, these visitors, these intruders, Lewis and Clark. But historians will list one primary reason why they were not killed. 
They were not killed and slaughtered because when they arrived, they had a young girl who had a baby. You see, warriors did not come out and fight with women and children. This little, what appeared to be a little piece of plastic, Sacagawea, most likely saved their lives as they journeyed. All the guys that said, are you kidding? You're going to bring her too? They must have had to shut their mouths that day. Now, Lewis and Clark finally reached the Shoshone tribe. Years, it had been years since Sacagawea had had any contact with the Shoshone tribe. In the meantime, as Lewis and Clark rolled in hoping that there would be some small chance that they could negotiate, total strangers negotiate to get the horses that were indispensable to making the rest of the journey. As they rolled in, the closer they got, Sacagawea recognized someone from the tribe because that was the tribe she was kidnapped from. She recognized someone. She recognized the chief of the Shoshones It was her brother. This person who many saw as dispensable and disposable came the very person that brought success to the mission. Look around you. It's a whole box with all the felt of silver. And all of us, Paul says, are indispensable. You are, you are, you are, you are. Every single one of us indispensable for the cause of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful, God, that you've seen all the mistakes and failures and and brokenness in our life. You were so more willing... God, rather than just get down on a wet pavement with grass to reach for us, God. To come down into the dirt of humanity. To lay yourself out. To extend your arms on a cross. To be tortured in agony. Because you, above all else, saw silver and not plastic. God, thank you. That you did not look at us as disposable. As we embrace that identity, God, as you call us indispensable. I pray, God, as Christians, as Christ followers, as recipients of a second chance. Having the identity as indispensable that this would engage our actions. That it would catalyze our actions, God, towards others. That if we're so readily, if we have so readily crossed people off, if we've diminished them, God, would you forgive us? We're sorry for those people that we've miniaturized, that we've made non-essential. We're reminded today that we ourselves, God, were not disposed of by Christ. 
Not only that, Father, would you empower us to write a different story to the relationships on which we journey together? Would you empower us, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit to allow truth to trump emotions? Allow truth, God, to trump, to overturn even our own broken patterns. That you would allow truth and empowered by the, the Holy Spirit, God, that you would allow us to go way beyond, well beyond who we've always been. Help us, Father, to see others through the lenses of Christ, to see others as indispensable, God, because it will alter our actions if we look through those lenses. And with that in mind, Father, we end today with a heart full of gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for not throwing us away, but for washing us, for rinsing us, for polishing us, for placing us, God. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.